Chapter 30 As well as his weapon, my captor was in possession of a high-powered torch. The beam hit me like a slap. I was made to crouch and lace my fingers over my head as he faced me. While he interrogated me, he kept the shine directly in my eyes. Everything around me was bleached, almost white in the light of his torch. Tell me your name. I don't know it. He laughed. Not quite a laugh, more an escape of air. I heard the reluctance in it, the disgust. Tell me what you're doing here. Looking for the boy? Don't be absurd, he said. I didn't respond. I might have been trying to stare him down, blinking in the painful brightness, trying to hold on to some strand of dignity no matter how pitiful I must have looked. I wanted to demand an explanation, but he sneered at me before I could say anything. Who do you think you are? he said. It can only have been to provoke asking me that. I was wondering about his accent when I suddenly realized I actually knew the answer. I told you, I lied, I don't know who I am. It dawned on me then that the tragedy of memory is that it's all anyone ever has. You expect me to believe that? he asked. Increasingly afraid, I shut my eyes. I must have been ghastly to look at, in shreds and in pieces. I should have cared, but I was too astonished by what was happening in my head. I didn't know whether to believe it or not. Just as crushing as being held at gunpoint was to know my name, than everything else about me, so suddenly. Now the memories that had been obscured came gladly, ready to answer any question I had. My breath quickened. It felt like being crushed. I couldn't see a thing, even squinting at him. But there it was, for all the world, the mask I'd hidden behind for all those years, thrown up by this strange encounter in a forest. I resisted for a moment because I didn't care to be reminded of my life. Who in their right senses would wish to be confronted with such a series of flaws and transgressions, and yet, on that occasion, in that place, with that rifle pointed at me, unable to use my eyes, I had the best opportunity ever to come face to face with it all. You're right, I said. What am I right about? You're right to suspect me. I hung my head. I don't know what you want, but I've nothing to do with the boy's disappearance. You think that's going to make a difference? I'm stating the facts. My tone upset him. The facts, he snapped with contempt. I'll give you facts. You're on your knees where you belong. <laughs> when I heard his laugh again, there was hatred whispered in it. I felt my life was about to end. I suppose I could have rushed him, but I had no strength left. Apart from the fact that I was getting used to the glare of his torch, he had every advantage. If I squinted now, I could make out his form, the dark outline of his head and shoulders. It told me very little. He would have had his finger on the trigger of his weapon when he said, If you're so keen on the facts, tell me your name. I told him my name was Otto Loser. He seemed pleased. Exactly, he said. And don't you forget it. He shot me through the heart, 
the intensity of the light. I died instantly. Chapter 31 The certainty that I was rising out of myself only added to the confusion of waking in a daylit place. What I perceived through that shock and some elation, but mostly pain and distress, were only fragments of the reality around me. I felt suspended, moving upwards from some unknowable emptiness towards this new location. It was all green, a pale kind of green, with yellow flowers in it and the face of a woman. Seeing her wasn't any more or less surprising when nothing about this experience could have been anticipated. The woman floated over me, calling out, it seemed to me. Despite her proximity, her voice seemed far off. She looked grotesque, her face expanding and contracting. I could see her lolling tongue. I called out too and threw my arms in any direction they would go. I made myself sound like a captured beast, furious and afraid for my life. My right arm felt unnaturally rigid as it collided with some metal bars. It was hard work moving my arm around. I heard the hollow clanging as it struck the bars and a pain with its own unique character shot through the right side of my body. I felt under attack and could only struggle to the bitter end, shaking my legs, gently bouncing, while my brain flashed up in long, brilliant streaks. But that wasn't the worst of it. I would be conscious for no more than another minute, and yet I was still able to gather information, and quickly realized there was something coming out of my nose. I didn't have the use of my right hand, so I grabbed it with my left hand and immediately tasted blood as I tore at it. A few others had come along, looking businesslike and determined to finish me off. They were all dressed in some kind of uniform. I felt positively by then that I had an unconditional right to be told what was going on. They held me by the arms and legs as I raged against being tortured and humiliated like this. Whatever was jammed up my nose had also been passed into my throat. I was choking on it. I told them I wanted them to remove it. I shouted at them, but they didn't seem to understand. I tried shouting in English, but it was too late. Then it was too dark to see. And evidently much later. My eyelids were so sticky they hardly came apart. I felt like I was strapped down because I couldn't raise either hand to rub them or scratch any of the other itches irritating me. A bead of sweat on my forehead trickled and dropped away to a small wet patch behind my head. I tried moving. I tried to identify anything around me. As yet there was nothing definite to see, only shapes. I could hear the breaths coming out of my mouth. I counted them and lost count. I didn't feel too awful, but it seemed that my thoughts were not as instantaneous as they ought to be. They emerged slowly, only with great effort, like an ooze, like a pool of blood in the sand. I held on to that image. It was a drowsy notion of my own blood draining into the sand. 
Somewhere off to my left, there was a faint blip, like an echo sounder in a submarine. I strained to concentrate on it, but it was a single event in the silence, and any certainty that I had actually heard it soon faded. I waited for it to happen again, but it didn't. I knew I should concentrate and not give up. I licked my lips. Even the slightest movement, even moving my tongue, brought on other unfamiliar pains. I thought I could smell something acrid and sweet like disinfectant. A new idea took shape. It finally occurred to me, after an age of trying to work out what was going on, that I was lying in a hospital bed, probably under the influence of some kind of medication slowing me down. Just being able to formulate such an insight gave me a profound thrill. My breathing picked up. I told myself I was going to be fine and let myself drift back to sleep on that happy thought. The voices brought me back. Before I opened my eyes, I knew the room was bright again. The pain, especially at the back of my head, was intense, but the voices were much clearer. They were English voices that triggered important memories. Just hearing them generated new certainties about my life. It was like suddenly acquiring a body of knowledge along with a place in the world. I was so unprepared it made me splutter. I attempted to open my eyes. My eyes were too gummy. It was far too bright. I closed my eyes again, trying to calm myself. One of the women said, I think he's coming round. She sounded edgy, as if she considered me a danger. I caught a glimpse of another woman. Because she addressed me directly, I thought she must be a doctor. Mr. Lozer, can you open your eyes for me? I didn't think I could. I kept them closed. I tried to swallow. My throat was dry and sore. The doctor asked if I could move any of the fingers on my left hand. I wasn't aware that I was able to, but she seemed unconcerned. How about your feet, she said. Try your left foot for me. I wanted to. I was in such a reduced condition, I could put all my faith into a voice I liked the sound of. I sent some kind of impulse to my left toe and thought it might have wiggled. That's fine, the doctor said. I gather you're from Austria. I wiggled my left toe again. It pleased me that they both laughed. Their voices faded as I blacked out again. The effort of wiggling my toes must have been too great. When I came to, they were gone. Now there was a different smell. I had the sense the sheets had been changed. For the first time I could open and close my eyes without them sticking too much. I stared at the ceiling for the longest time. I decided it was beige, maybe lighter than that, more like magnolia. Later I studied all the cracks I could find in the paint. I took an interest in a technical device at the periphery of my view of the ceiling. I thought it might be a smoke alarm. How long had I been there? Hours? Days? Weeks? I had no idea. I knew I had a number of injuries, some of them serious, but I couldn't recall how I'd come by them. My head and chest were bandaged. My right arm was in plaster. I couldn't feel my right leg at all. 
I knew myself to be a reckless driver and wondered if I'd been in a collision. Thank God I could think again without feeling that I was immersed in some kind of sludge. All my senses seemed to be working normally. If there was any damage to my brain, it didn't appear to have inhibited my ability to recall my life, although I found I couldn't recall everything. I was able to run parts of my life back and forth, watching what happened, often dismayed by what I saw. I took myself step by step through who I was, what I'd been doing, and how I'd come to be in England. Gradually, I was able to piece together a man who felt bitter about the way his life had gone. He suffered from insecurities, but had cultivated a sheen of arrogance towards everyone he came into contact with. People didn't like him, and on the whole he preferred it that way. This man's family mostly lived in and around Vienna. They were rarely in touch with him. He spoke to his ex-wife every now and again, so he knew his daughter was studying to be a lawyer. His son was still in school. He hadn't seen either of his children in years. He'd fled Austria. He had never been able to reconcile the why of it. He could hardly think about it. As such, he'd never been able to escape his own quiet desperation. It soon became obvious and correct, albeit strange, that this man should be thinking of himself in his memory as someone else. Chapter 32 I remembered going for a walk by the sea. The sky that day may have drawn me there. I was always taken aback and delighted by the sight of an ocean swell. The white horses under the greys, greens and mauves always drew me. Until I came to England I'd never had the opportunity to experience that kind of emptiness looking to the horizon from the coast. Everywhere else there was division and discord. The country was about to plunge into a vote about leaving the European Union. I had nothing legitimate to say about the stresses of those politics. During my short walk that day, I was even able to forget about it. I remembered the cold breeze stinging my eyes. I shoved my hands into my pockets. I made my way along the beach, nobody else there, kicking up the fine clumpy sand every now and again. It was the color of terracotta pots. As I walked, pretty aimlessly, my long shadow played in what must have been the last stretches of sunlight. That was the last memory I had. I thought I must have got back into my car and driven away. I would find out what had happened much later. What came out of it was a fractured skull, broken ribs, internal hemorrhaging, two clean breaks in my right arm, and some deep lacerations on my shoulder. I learned from Dr. Addis that I'd been kept in a coma, my brain stem dangerously swollen. I'm sure some part of me would have preferred oblivion to this rude return to what I was and the way I did things. The only way out, it seemed, was to try not to be that way anymore. I took my cues from the present. Everything had changed. Even in those first few hours of being conscious, there was something vibrant and fresh about everything I looked at. It was a feeling I didn't care to relinquish. It was as if I might be in a world that I'd never known before. 
Even much later, when I was back on my feet, I could still feel some of this exhilaration and gratitude to an extent I would never have allowed myself in the past. It wasn't long before I was sitting and talking without slurring my words, and nearly all the drips and tubes were gone. Dr. Addis warned me that I should expect to be disoriented and unable to do much without assistance at first. She encouraged me to be active and said more than once she was confident I would make a good recovery. Within a day of coming out of my coma, the nurses had me walking again. It made me giddy with pain and I had to earn each dose of morphine. I seemed to make slow progress, apart from the fact that I'd lost control over my right leg. It dragged along after me, refusing to cooperate. I had to hobble with the nurse, up past the TV, along to the reception, then back towards the windows. We did this a few times each day. My suffering amused them no end. They indulged in a long list of light remarks they both knew by heart they'd done this so often. They took to calling me Humpty Dumpty and told me not to worry. My injuries made me look rugged. Marie appeared during one of those early hop-along sessions. She walked through a set of swing doors. We were edging away from the front desk when I saw her out of the corner of my eye. I had to turn sharply, despite knowing the pain it would cause me. I was so stunned by the sight of her, I forgot to groan. At first the nurses thought this was funny. They chirped in with their humorous asides. Look who's back, they said. Isn't she lovely? You must be over the moon. They weren't to know that Marie and I hadn't seen each other in years, and quickly changed their tone when they realized I wasn't coping. I went completely limp. The idea that Marie was standing in front of me now, in England, gave me such a powerful feeling of displacement, I dragged both feet and let my head flop to my chest. I was pulled over the floor, back to my bed, still sensing her somewhere behind me, her raincoat draped over her arm. Since I'd left Vienna, there had been little more than a silence of disgust between us, broken by the occasional period of truce. On those occasions, when we spoke on the phone, it was mostly to talk about our children, who became the single topic of neutrality between us. Strangely, probably because the memories were so painful. As soon as Marie appeared on the ward, Isabel and Jacob appeared in spirit with her, and my collapse was complete. With everything between us so irretrievably spoiled, it was the only reaction left to me. I passed out. A few hours later, I made myself think that it might not have been Marie after all. From my point of view, our meeting that day had been too brief and difficult to count as real. That evening, when I came round, I felt anxious that Marie might be there again, and this would only confirm that I still wasn't able to process reality. But one of the nurses explained that my lovely wife had been by my side for two days while I was under, and that she'd travelled all the way from Austria to be with me. I woke early the next morning, just as Marie was crossing her legs. I focused on the curve and twist of her neck as she glanced over her shoulder at someone. I stirred and she looked my way. I was treated to all the signals of her beauty. Her prominent cheekbones, a forehead like something sculpted, 
and golden skin with green, slavic eyes and a wide mouth that could so easily elevate her looks into something stunning when she smiled. She wasn't smiling, though. When she looked back at me, it was her consternation that was so captivating. She put her hand on the side of my bed. What's happened to you, Otto? She asked this in German. I couldn't answer. I wondered if she was asking about what had happened to my body, or what had happened to my personality, or what had happened to us, or what had happened to the country. If only it hadn't been so brief, I thought afterwards, after Marie had gone. We'd had several conversations during the course of that day. We talked over things and under things, but never quite about things. We may as well have been talking to ourselves, the conversations were so disjointed. One exchange in particular comes to mind. We'd broken into English. How did you get here, I asked. You look terrible with a beard, she said. How's Lizzie? The smile dropped when I said that. You mean Izzy? I shut my eyes, annoyed at my confusion. Izzy, I said. How is she? Studying hard. She has a boyfriend. Who? You wouldn't know him. What's his name? Zolt. Is that a name? He's Hungarian. How could this happen? What's that supposed to mean? You with your Polish chum, and now Lizzie with some Attila nobody knows from Adam. What does he do? He's called Zolt, and she's called Izzy. And Bartek has nothing to do with this. Leave him out of it. I thought of a few tribal things to say about Poles and Hungarians, but didn't have the energy to fire them off. Or perhaps I didn't care to fire them off. It troubled me that I didn't know who I was being anymore. We stared at each other until something else needed to be said. I asked Marie in German how she'd found out about me. Her look softened. Her voice did too. I got a call, she said. The police? I don't know who she was. A woman? I was too obviously appalled. She told me you were in hospital. What else did she tell you? She just said you were in hospital. How did she get your number? The distress I was feeling now pumped in every direction. What had the woman's voice sounded like? Had she come to the hospital? Had Marie met with the woman? But there was no way of interrogating her about any of this. I couldn't face spoiling our fragile reunion with something that could well have overwhelmed us both at that moment. Instead I asked, where are you staying? You shouldn't talk so much. Her voice became hushed. You talk to me then, I said, my voice a whisper to meet hers. I'd begun to sweat. My head was throbbing. I felt glad of our German whispers. They were a waft of cool air in the conversation. Talk to me, I said. Apart from anything else, I wanted to hear Marie's voice chime and swish like it used to. I wanted to hear it with my eyes closed, the clarity and truth of it. Tell me how Jamie is, I said. In the seconds that followed, we both became frustrated. Do you mean Jacob, she said coldly. When I met her eyes, they were wide with shock. I didn't rise to it. I shut my eyes and winced as I shook my head to show her I didn't understand anything either. It was a silly aberration. 
I don't believe a day went by when I didn't acknowledge my children, agonizing over their absence. I regretted everything I'd done to drive them out of my life. I opened my eyes again, rolling them, but trying to focus on Marie. I've been in a coma, I said. It was a limp excuse. I knew this as soon as the excuse escaped my lips. We fell into another silence of disgust, until all I could think of asking was, Where are you staying? I'm taking the train back later. You only just got here. No, Otto, you only just got here. You want to leave so soon? I have to get back. Will I see you again? If you need something, I can get it for you now. I'd like to see you. Marie smiled. I think you'll be fine, she said. There wasn't room in her reply for any argument I could think of. I observed, looking at her more carefully, that her features had changed. It was all so subtle I couldn't work it out then, but disturbing my mental image of Marie, her youth and her gentleness, was a look of determination. Before she left, she bent forward to say goodbye, but stopped short of a kiss. For a moment I succumbed to her smell as she placed her hand on my good arm. I tried to catch her wrist, but failed. We must stay in touch, she said, squeezing my arm. As she left, I fell in love with her for the first time. If only it hadn't been for the man who came before me, who'd never been able to tolerate love. <laughs>